We really want to have you know proof of concept that this works. And then what we want to do, Zach, is just cookie cut this around the country, and you know go to other you know independently owned, preferably uh, minority owned or LGBTQ owned uh, you know businesses, uh, small businesses uh, around the country, and focus on more students of color. Um, getting into the wine game and in the hospitality. What up, Austin? It's Zach Video. That was the voice of TJ Douglas, today's guest. You guys are in for a treat. TJ is the co-owner of the Urban Grape in the South End, very popular wine store in the South End that he owns with his wife, Hadley Douglas. TJ is a black man in the hospitality industry, something he talks about a bit on the podcast and sort of due to the challenges that he faced as a minority in the hospitality industry. TJ is responsible for some really cool initiatives to help create pathways for young people of color to break into the hospitality industry. So we unpack that and more in this episode, and I'm really excited to share it with you all. Enjoy. Zach's video from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with the sponsor, Reed. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up for more than 35 years. Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach's your video here from Boston Speaks Up, and I'm here with TJ Douglas, uh, one of the, the co-owners and, and founders of The Urban Grape. What's up, TJ? What's up, Zach? Happy to be here, man. Thanks for being here, and you're you're a... You're co-owner of the Urban Grape with your with your wife, Hadley. How neat! Yeah, it's great. We opened up uh, our store in our first store in 2010, and we kind of separated church and state. She uh, put it brilliantly that that she sells the store and I sell what's in it. So she <laughs> does all the marketing, and and I I run the store and, and the staff and the head wine buyer. So it's uh it's a good it's a good teammate. That's awesome. That's awesome. I know we, you mentioned this in the pre-podcast Q and a just, and you guys have learned like just at a certain point, you got to shut it off. Like talking about work at 11, 11 o'clock at night before bed, maybe not the best time. Um, but I imagine you guys have sort of like implemented some good best practices to sort of like separating church and state. You know, I mean, we, we try, you know, um, and we try to live by that, by not, you know, talking about work as we're like getting into bed to go to sleep. Uh, and it works, but, you know, sometimes it works, but, you know, we we're talking about work at 11 o'clock last night in bed. So. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes but, it's the only you time know, you can we, talk. It's the only time that we can talk. And it's, you know, there's much less distraction, right? Because we're not on our phones. We're not on our computers. We're not watching TV. We're just, you know, sitting there in the in, in the dark, you know? and yeah. it's a, you know, a lot of good ideas come up at that time, especially being entrepreneurs, you know, like it's, you know, you, you can think of great things. Uh, and the, the, the key is to remember them in the morning. 
Yeah. And for listeners, I'm going to have TJ give, give background in just a moment, but if I could tug at this yarn a little bit more, it's interesting, TJ, like, cause I'm, you know, we're, I'm a parent my wife and I have a three and a half year old daughter and, you know, conversations with each other are limited in a one-on-one capacity. We're both working, we have a kid. So I literally actually cherish that time before bed with my wife and literally learned last night in bed that when my wife was an infant, uh, my mother-in-law, my wife's mother went back to school to get her master's and used to take my wife like in a carrier into class and she went to like <laughs> night school and I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe I never learned this. I'm like, I guess we need to chat more at 11 o'clock at night in bed, you know, cause these, these are the moment we're like, you know, we've been together for like a decade and we're, you know, you're still peeling back layers of the onion and it's just, there's just limited time. Uh, but it just, no, can, can totally relate to like the, uh, that, you know, taking advantage of whatever time you can get. Um, so well, when so, your three-year-old yeah. turns into a 12 or 14 year old, <laughs> then you're closing doors. So they're not eavesdropping on every little thing. So. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny what, it's funny what a three and a half year old already eavesdrops on and like oh, totally. plays back to you. You're like, Whoa, she's like two rooms <laughs> away. We don't have like an open concept house. We have like a bungalow. Like how the hell did she even hear us? Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's wild. Um, so, so TJ, I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of going through like your full kind of, you know, origin story, if you will. Um, but first, and for, you know, for listeners, like, could you give, give a bit of background on the urban grape? And I'll just say like, I recently attended, um, an event that you did with Silicon Valley bank, where it was an awesome, like virtual wine tasting that, right. um, you know, your store, the urban grape, like the urban grape had delivered some wine ahead of time to attendees and, and you, um, did a wonderful job like sharing your story. And then also just like educating me and the rest of the group on, um, on wine. And, and sort of, you have this really interesting sort of proprietary, um, progressive scale, uh, system for sorting wine by its body instead of by its um, varietal, varietal or region, and 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 I just I I found the way that you you spoke of wine and, and the way you presented yourself just you made you made um, you made it a lot more accessible and 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 then to kind of hear more about your story and 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 how you're trying to make you know the hospitality industry more accessible to people of color. Cause you know, you are a black man, you are a minority in, in the industry. Um, it just, you know, it just really screamed to me like, wow, this is just one of those special sort of entrepreneurial sort of, um, business leaders in Boston that, um, is, would be wonderful to connect with more deeply. So I'm really grateful to connect with you. And I just wanted to give a little, little color for listeners as to like how I initially met you. And I want to, you know, give a shout out to, um, Boston Speaks Up sponsor, Silicon Valley Bank, for sort of introducing me to you through that event. Um, and I'm really grateful for your time today um, that you're taking away from what is a faux vacation that you're having uh, <laughs> down at your in- in-laws in in in, uh, in Rhode Island with with folks all you know on, on your end, sort of vaccinated and tested across the board. Um, but yeah, why don't you, why don't you kind of give folks a, a background on the urban grape and the business as it stands today. And then we can kind of unpack some other things from there. Yeah, totally. Well, thanks again um, for, for having me on this. I'm excited to be here. And um, thanks. Thank you for taking the time and wanting to, you know, hear, hear my story um, and, and share it with the listeners. So 
Um, so yeah, uh, we are currently an 11 year old uh, store. I opened up my first store uh, in 2010 in a suburb of Boston called Chestnut Hill, and um, and then we we did extremely well, and we were offered to open up a location uh, actually about a block from our house where we lived in Boston uh, in 2012. So we opened up that second store, which is our current store. Uh, and it absolutely took off and, you know, kind of like the old, old business saying like location, location, location. Well, it was, uh, it was definitely location and it took off so, so well. Um, but being, uh, being like the sole wine buyer and the general manager and, you know, the founder and all, all this other stuff, uh, being in, in two places at one time was absolutely impossible. And I was always, at, I felt like I was always at the other store at the wrong time, right? Like the client that I wanted to see was in Chestnut Hill, but I was in Boston. Or, you know, the, the client that I want to see in Boston, uh, I'm now in Chestnut Hill. And so, you know, having this back and forth, I realized that at my store in Boston, we were doing about twice the sales and at about, um, about a third of the cost, mm. <clears throat> operating cost. And so we looked at that and it was a really hard decision for Hadley and I to make to end up selling our, our license um, and get out of that get out of that location and we ended up doing that uh, at the very end of 2015. So we were open there for, for five and a half years, and uh, you know the day that we signed the, the PNS and the liquor license to to, to get rid of it, um, we looked at each other as such a, a weight off of our of, off of our chest Zach, that that we realized that and like we should have done this three years ago. But, but we weren't ready for that. And so why that's a really important kind of nugget to, to know and to understand in Urban Grapes history as, as, a, as a retail store is that the moment that we sold and I was solely focused on the, on the one brick and mortar, it allowed us to not just be a wine store, but to be more than a wine store. It allowed us not only the capacity, but also the bandwidth to really expand on our 2,300 square feet and um, we started a division or part of the company called Urban Affairs, which was our, uh, our is our education and event side of the company, which is now, as you know, is uh, 100% virtual. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I started uh, Urban Seller, which is my um, my private seller consultation business for high net worth clients, where I physically and virtually manage their their sellers from you know from a thousand bottles to to ten thousand bottle sellers in different locations around the country. Um, and then we also uh, were able to start an online platform to to have a, a greater reach outside of our zip code in the south end of Boston, uh, along with uh, delivery. And so that all started coming to fruition in you know late 2016, and now we here are in 2021. And uh, you know when we're going to our second decade this year, uh, we had a whole business model. Um, to kind of like revamp what we're doing. Uh, and then uh, in March, when COVID hit, we threw that out and uh, <laughs> kind of you know, started all over again. And it's actually been really wonderful since then. That's great. I mean, in, in some ways, while you had to like pivot and throw some of that out, like a lot of what you were laying the groundwork for in like 2016, 2017 <laughs> were models that applied well into the pandemics kind of stay at home order environment, like one being the ability to make the educational sort of like, you know, sales coaching element 
um, virtual and then two being like the delivery service, which I think is what yeah. I experienced when I got my delivery of wine a couple of weeks back for the event. Um, so was it that you had, like, do you feel that you had a bit of a leg up in pivoting in like last March, April, when, when, when the pandemic really kind of came into full swing and the stay at home orders came in or, or just how much did you have to throw out and kind of reinvent yourself? Yeah. Um, it's a great, it's a great way that you, you phrase that question, Zach. Um, you know, we, I don't think, I think we pivoted for about a week, but I have this idea of, you know, like I, I grew up playing basketball and, you know, a pivot is, you know, one foot planted and you're spinning with your elbows out, you know, and protecting the ball. Right. And, you know, oh, yeah. I think we did that for about a week, about a week's time, maybe two weeks. And then we just realized that the pivot is not going to move us forward. It's just going to make us spin and just protect ourselves, where this is a great opportunity to really reimagine what the urban grape is and also what it can be. Um, you know, and logistically, we already had a delivery system in place, but we were doing like 15 to 20 deliveries a day with one driver and one van, five days a week. Uh, and then in June, we upped it to two. And then in October, we upped it to three. And we just hired our fourth driver. So, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic to one year later, we've gone from 18 deliveries <clears throat> roughly a day um, with one driver um, to on average about 100 deliveries a day um, with three drivers, uh, three vans, uh, six days a week. And, um, you know, so what we realized, not only with, with our delivery system, but also, and I know we'll get into this later with like kind of creating access, which is where yeah. the urban grape started with, um, which I purposely did not, did not speak on yet, um, is that we realized that, that we have to meet our, our community and our customers where they are. Right. And, you know, you can kind of like understand how that is like metaphorically, yeah. but I'm talking about like, actual physically we have to meet that, right? if you're at a stay at home order you can't come into the store that's closed right but if we keep our store closed to keep our staff and our community safe and we meet you where you are right and we leave it on your porch and we see your id through the door or we do whatever like that we meet like people appreciated that people understood that and we also have to be very transparent of like look this is how we're running it and other people aren't doing their business the same way that we are but this is the way that we need to do it because it's just my wife and i this is our business we don't have investors to listen to we don't have bosses that we can listen to we can try it and you know what if it doesn't work we can we can change it up but because we're able to meet our our our, our customers uh you know where where they were at the time uh, we've ended up uh, having uh, since last year we're up about sixty five percent from a very um, actually a very great year in 2019. 2020 was actually up sixty five percent off of 19, where the industry average was about twenty five percent for wine retail around the country because all of our friends and restaurants were closed. You know, so people were either drinking the same or maybe even a little bit more, nice. uh, but they were doing it at home. And if we could take that opportunity. Uh, again, to meet them where they were uh, and give them that great urban grape hospitality and that service. Uh, we knew that we were going to come um, through with this and, uh, you know, really live in our new uh, reimagined, um, very successful urban grape. Right on. Now, I want to double click on the, a couple things here. One is like the delivery service and kind of if you could 
compare it to Drizzly because I actually, you included like some marketing material in the delivery I got a few weeks back, mm-hmm. just like, and, and I, like, I, I would rather you, you share like, cause in their, and they're actually quite they They're pretty obvious to me after kind of getting to know you, but can you, for listeners that might be interested, um, can you kind of like juxtapose? I mean, Drizzly, everyone knows Drizzly just sold for, you know, $1.1 billion, you know, beverage delivery service. But what, what are some of the advantages to going with like a, a urban grape sort of like wine expert sort of like delivery service over say a Drizzly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so so Drizzly was started by a Boston guy um, who used to work for a company that we do a lot of corporate business for, you know, so it's kind of close to home here. Uh, you know, just between you and me and full transparency, we uh, they approached us um, uh, a, a while back um, trying to have us be one of their customers because, you know, they, they mostly work with like big box stores um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, for the you know massive uh, variety. And they wanted to, uh, you know, have a focus on a more curated selection, which you find in independently owned small shops. And, uh, right. you know, the, their, their presentation is that we can, you know, we can expand your customer base and we can do this, we can do this. But in the very, very, very fine print, uh, for them to get into your uh, inventory system to see what you sold, they also get access to all of your customer database. And they said, there's no, there's no way to turn that off. And so, you know, my spidey sense said that, nope, this is not going to happen. Uh, we're we're going to do this ourselves. And, you know, the thing with Drizzly is that they do a great job of being able to meet people where they are, right? It makes it right. one-click shopping, but you don't, you know, you don't get to have that experience from a curated um, wine selection, from a curated website, um, and being able to shop kind of like the way that, that, that we sell the Urban Grape. We're on this progressive scale where it's we it, we really believe that and actually we put the sandwich sign out um uh, sandwich board out on, on the side of on our sidewalk um right when the pandemic hit and people started just freaking out and like you know buying all the pinot grigio and toilet paper that they can find right across across the country and like we put a sandwich sign out and we put it up on our on our social media we're like like people like take take like take it easy it still matters what you drink mm-hmm. right and with a delivery app like this, you're not getting the experience that you, as the customer who is the most important person in the wine industry, you're not getting the experience uh, that you deserve from walking into one of these independently owned shops. And so the Drizzly, you might say, oh, I really want to support Urban Grape, but if I don't have that, you know, that specific bottle that you're looking for, or if I'm not paying more money to advertise to have my shop come up first in your search, then it's going to go to the shop around town where they might have nine stores, right? And it's not an independently owned shop. And so it's really interesting the way that they sold for one, you know, one point something billion dollars because of, co- of course they did, you know, I mean, it's, it's Uber now, right? Yeah. And so Uber Eats is going to deliver, you know, your, your, um, uh, you know, your, your to go food from a, from a restaurant. Uh, they're going to deliver the wine, but like, how do they know that if it's, you know, 90 degrees that they're just going to not throw your wine in the trunk and it's going to get super hot or are they trained, are they tip certified to be able to deliver wine to customers, right? Like there's all these other things which are going to be really interesting to see come down the line. Um, I think for the consumer having that ease um, is very convenient, but it's up to us independent wine retailers um, to really have control 
um, from start to finish. And that's one of the, that's the main reasons that we're not in is that the moment that that product leaves the urban grape, we're no longer in control. And if that bottle breaks, it's not Uber that's getting the phone call. It's not Drizzly. It's the urban grape, right? And so you're yeah. adding someone into that position that you have no control over. And, you know, urban grape, we want to have control of the customer experience from the moment that they hear about us to the moment that they're, you know, having that glass of wine at their dinner table or at their, you know, counter at home. Um, and then the, that was kind of like one answer to the first part. The second part is like, you know, my, my, my drivers get paid way above minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they all get 401k. They all get matching health insurance. Awesome. Um, they drive urban gray paid vehicles. They have company credit cards. Um, you know, the, the, the recipient knows who's delivering them, what van they're driving and what, um, uh, what license plate is. And they have that person's phone number that if there is an issue, they can contact us directly. So it keeps us in control, but also it provides, uh, you know, a great living wage, uh, and tips to, to our delivery drivers, one of which was an out of work, uh, retired Navy man, right? Like, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. and it's, and it's great. So, um, you know, it's, it's, and so for, and I'll, and I'll finish with this. Uh, it's, it's really great that the people that, that shop with the urban grape and receive our, our deliveries, whether it's our, our, our monthly wine club that they get hand delivered, or they just, you know, want a six pack of beer and a couple bottles of wine, uh, delivered to their home. Since we have now four delivery drivers, they now ha- can have a face that they relate to just as if they were coming in and walking into the urban grape and seeing one of our staff. So that's, yeah. that's, that's where it is, you know? Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I, I mean, the, the, the sort of smart move, by the way, not, not getting in a position where all that you, customer data was in the hands of Grizzly <laughs> yeah. and now it'd be in the hands of Uber and you'd really be screwed. Um, or, 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 you know, I mean, you'd certainly have lost leverage in your position vis-a-vis Uber. Um, but, but it's interesting cause you think Uber, you know, you know, Drizzly now Uber and it's just, it's so grandiose and it's sort of like more of a macro economics and a macro marketing and it's everything sort of macro and sort of like the lens that they view things. I look at the urban grape and I, and I considered, you know, a lot of the trends in the world. And it just seems like there's also this like counter trend to the macro trends where it's really important to be like hyper local and community oriented. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, previously in interviews and, and, and we talked about it just like lightly, I teased it out before, like, you know, you are a black man in the wine industry and mm-hmm. you know, wine is, is, is the industry itself is just filled with, with, with lots of white people. But I imagine like, and tell me if I'm wrong, like there's also kind of a lack of like, you know, wine specialty shops in like well curated wines, like in what would be considered like more like urban areas in cities, like, and there's this ability through the urban grapes, delivery um business and sort of like your more micro kind of community focus that you can go and impress upon other communities that otherwise don't get exposed to great curated wines many of which are more accessible than people realize and they can Mm -hmm. kind of get exposure to what the urban grape offers so i'm just curious like am i am i drawing too big a conclusion that you know there's there's also this like unique ability that you can sort of help you know 
people of all races, um, but particularly of communities that are underserved from a good wine curation standpoint to actually be exposed to good wine and be and be sort of like you know, introduced and welcomed into what would be considered like the wine community? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great, another great question. I mean, you know, white, uh, white wine drinkers, uh, are, are, so let me rephrase this wine drinkers that we see in advertisements really pre 2020 or, or, or maybe pre June 2020, uh, have, you know, I'm going to throw this number out, but I think I'm probably correct. It's probably been 99.5% um, white drinkers. Right. Um, and White people, you know, not white wine. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. there are a lot of uh, non-white wine drinkers in the world, right. but they're just not, mar- they're not marketed to. And so, it, you know, from a marketing standpoint, it keeps wine at this very kind of like in, in this like elitist bubble that you sure. can only be like one type of person. To enjoy it, right, and and you have to be, uh, you have to know um, where Tuscany is on the globe uh, in order to drink a wine from, you know, Western Central Italy, right, and and that's it's it's if it's marketed that way, then people tend to believe that if it's not marketed to them, that it's not for them, and that's where Urban Grape comes in, and you know, I created this. Um, this way of, of buying wine and selling wine uh, called the progressive scale, where we we think about the body of the wine, the viscosity of the wine, uh, on a scale of one to ten, light being um, or like one being like skim milk, very light bodied, and ten being like heavy cream, very full bodied, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to geographical regions like Tuscany or by grape varietal like Pinot Noir or Sangiovese or Cabernet, um, because those are all things like geography you have to memorize, right? Um, but if you said, I just want something that's medium bodied, you can get a great selection of wine that's going to be fit for your palate, right? So right. I created this to make it even because if you've never been to Tuscany, then how can you relate to Tuscany, right? right. Um, and if it's marketed that this reminds me of Tuscany, then you still have to be able to relate to that. And I think that's a very unfair and really kind of like elitist way to sell. And also, to me, especially when it comes to retail, it's a very lazy way to sell mm. of just having a Cabernet section or an, or an Italy section because wines are manipulated in so many different ways. And depending on, you know, the, the, the year of harvest, you know, it comes down to farming. If one year was a hot year and one year was a cold, rainy year, the wine should be different every single year. Um, but, and that, you know, and that changes on the progressive scale. But he, here's the thing, you know, you mentioned about, about not having, you know, like a, maybe a curated wine selection in these, you know, underserved neighborhoods or, or something like that, more urban neighborhoods. Yeah. And the problem is, is like, you know, yeah, like wine is marketed as, as, as an elite kind of category, but wine itself is a luxury. Like, especially in the United States, like we don't have to drink wine, right? Like right. an $8 wine is a luxury good. Right, a $15 wine is a luxury good. Right, a $25 wine is actually an, uh, an ultra luxury wine. Mm-hmm. Right, so if these you know luxury products are not in uh, an underserved neighborhood, uh, and how do we get them there? Well, a lot of these underserved neighborhoods also don't have grocery stores. Right, so yeah. if you don't have fresh fruit and fresh veggies and good meat, why should you be able to? have a $45 Cabernet at your local store, right? So it's got to start 
you know, I think with grocery stores and, and it has to be, you know, food to me comes before wine, right? Yeah. And so when you have these places, these distributors of wine um, and spirits, they're going to these like local like bodegas or package stores in these areas and they're only presenting like cheap wine that happens to be sweet because in their minds, well, like why would these people ever buy $45 wines? You know, if they don't, if they're, if they're, you know, not, if there's not shopping at a Whole Foods there, why would they do this? And it's just like, well, these people might get Whole Foods delivered to them. Doesn't mean they're not eating Whole Foods, but you're only selling them. You're saying that in their world, it's not what we see on the advertisement. You're saying what they drink in these areas are cheap wines that are sweet, that always taste the same, and that they don't get, you know, you're not giving them the attention that they deserve. And I think that's a very um, unfair way to sell. So at the Urban Grape, you know, we have a very far reach. Um, one is because we deliver. And also with that, with that Drizzly thing, it's like what Drizzly did do good for independent wine shops around the country uh, is it trained customers, especially during COVID, uh, it trained customers that they could actually order alcohol and get it delivered to them, right? So yeah. now it's not really new to anyone to get groceries delivered to home, right? Or oh, alcohol yeah. delivered, right? We've always gotten like pizza delivery. We can get anything delivered now because of COVID. It, 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 it made people change and make people reach their customers where they are as opposed to depending on them coming to the store. Yeah, yeah good and behavior so, training. Totally, right? And, yeah. you know, if you try to train your own customers that way, it would take years to do it, right? And but it costs a lot of money. And yeah, that's where the, pandemic, that's where the big guys help. To, yeah, that's exactly. where Amazon yeah. and Ubers help train new yeah. behaviors that you can then sort of draft off of. Absolutely. So, you know, seeing and, you know, during this pandemic, and we've always focused on trying to get more brown and black people to come into the store and to and to do more um, you know, tastings and learn a little bit more because we know that those that they don't have the same wines in their neighborhoods that they do in in the South End location. And you know, a couple of years ago, uh, I, I got really tired of, of of being in this industry for you know twenty plus years. At that point, we got really tired of not having customers that look like me, right? Of not having staff that look like me. Uh, and I felt like I was the only person in the room, even though the room was my, was my store. And I wanted to, you know, do more events. So we did a ton. We always make a, an effort to do a ton of, um, uh, uh, like corporate events, but for like their affinity groups or their DEI programs. And back in telling you, man, every single event that I've ever done or like a, like a, like a black networking event or Latin mm-hmm. networking event at the store, um, every single time I've done them, Multiple people came up to me. And it's like, you know what? I, I I didn't know Cabernet was a, was a was a red wine, or I didn't realize that they made wine uh, in New York, or I didn't realize that I liked other wines other than Moscato, right? And they're like, thank you so much for coming in, right? And uh, and and other people would say, you know what? I've walked past your store a hundred times, but I never came in. And I said, well, why? They're like, well, because it, it looks super nice and it looks expensive. And I didn't feel like I had a place in here. I said, well, you know, our store is absolutely gorgeous because where wine is growing on this earth, wine is growing in the most gorgeous places on earth and sold in the ugliest. Mm. So why not have a great space where you come in? And I said, you know, my, my goal when I got into the wine industry 
Kim's was to help take the intimidation out of wine, but also help build community through beverage. And so if I can use my platform and my education to get someone to taste and say, hey, you know, this is like this wine, this is like this wine. Uh, oh, and by the way, this comes to Italy, you know, comes from Italy. And this is what the harvest is like. That person just left with a little bit more knowledge. Uh, but more importantly, they, they received some hospitality and they, yeah. they felt welcomed. And they're a customer for life, even if they live 10 miles away. There's right? accessibility so moving forward. So deliver to them or they come in, you know? And it's just, it's changed. I don't want to, you know, kind of get off, get off your path here. But, um, you know, the way that we've expanded our business over the years is, you know, we started in, you know, in, in, in our zip code and we went out, right? You know, we, we started in our own community and then we grew our community, right? And because we've always been a very transparent company, uh, and we offer a great service and we offer great products and curated products. Um, you know, we, we have a very strong committed, uh, community to the urban grape and, you know, we obviously wouldn't be here without them. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, one idea, I can't help myself. I'm a marketer. Um, <laughs> and also just a connector. Have you ever, have you heard of the fresh truck by any chance? So to your point about sort of fresh fruits and vegetables, not really serving the underserved communities. It's so true. Um, you know, there's like, you know, communities even like, so a buddy of mine, his name is Josh Trotwine. Um, I met him playing soccer years and years ago. He's become a really good friend. I've had him on the podcast. He's the founder of fresh truck. Um, happens to be a mixed race kid. Like his, his mom's white, his dad's from Jamaica, um, and he like really just finds, find, finds it frustrating that, you know, he's trying to attack the sort of the health issues facing just Boston and eventually more communities. And so he retrofitted school buses, um, and turned them into rolling farmers markets. And hmm. this is like a bit, it's, it's become like a thing in Boston, the pandemic kind of yeah. screwed it up a little bit and he's had to, he's had to do his own pivots. We don't need to get into here, but if you look up fresh truck, you see, you know, they're post up in East Boston and Roxbury and like all these mm -hmm. communities that don't have like the, the, to your point, like, you know, fresh, you know, the right food is sort of like, you know, critically important. Um, but I could see there being like, and there's probably, maybe there is, but like a hospitality, you know, local hospitality business Alliance where like, complimentary businesses could kind of be involved and come up with some like interesting ideas. Cause like I could see the urban grape kind of, you know, showing up as a brand, like with the fresh truck as fresh trucks kind of hitting those communities. But then also like, you know, like as those community, you know, as those people you mentioned that you made wine more accessible to that are willing to go 10 miles to come visit the urban grape in the South end of Boston. Well, why not have the fresh truck out front? You know, like, yeah. you know, for, and, and it's just, there is, so just pointing that out to you is just sort of like a like mind out there in the community, sort of like a complimentary business and kind of just, you know, helping create accessibility, um, in their case to sort of healthy food specials. But you, you kind of teased at that problem and, and I couldn't agree with you more. And that just happens to be like a really cool initiative out of Boston that, that is working on that. So it's, it's worth, it's worth checking out. So yeah, I love that idea, and I am familiar with them. Um, so let, let's listen to this real quick. So years yeah. ago, my wife worked. Uh, I think it was, she was on a. I think she was on maybe like a panel um, for for the governor, and they were doing uh, uh, urban gardens, 
right? So they were in like Roxbury and, and, and Mattapan and stuff like that, Dorchester, uh, and I think some things in East Boston. And, you know, there's these urban gardens and they're teaching kids how to like grow tomatoes, right? And it was great because these kids would grow tomatoes, but it, w- it wasn't just kind of one-sided. It was, it was multi-dimensional because they grew the tomatoes. And once the tomatoes were ready, they took the tomatoes and they taught the kids how to make salsa. Nice. Right? So now you yeah, grew yeah. it, but now you know what to do with it. And yeah. then those kids all went home and I'm, you know, I'm shortening the story up a lot, yeah. but they all went home and I think they grew peppers too. They threw some peppers in there. So they go home and they have this salsa on their, on their table. And this, this might be a kid that, you know, just gets dinner from, you know, frozen food and a bag of chips and a soda from the bodega on the corner. But now there's family um, that this kid can be proud of has a has fresh veggies on their table and they now learn how to like what what how that's good for your body they knew they he learned how to grow it uh and now they learn how to share it and now that kid gets something healthy in his or her body you know that night or for that week and it's just something that is it's so simple and easy to do but we as a community have to do more of that. We have to teach people how to do something, the importance of it, but also how to use it, right? How, to, how do you implement your knowledge, right? How do you implement it? And when, you know, hopefully those kids, and this is probably, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I mean, those kids are probably, you know, 20 years old now, right? Uh, 20, 25 years old now. I'm wondering if, if those salsa-making kids that learned how to make a healthy meal, I wonder if that's stayed with them all of these years i wonder how involved they are within within their communities you know yeah that's and, interesting yeah we love we love being a part of, of of all of these and there's so many great great projects out there um right now that people have been doing um but you know really especially this you know your your buddy um you know for for being a person of color and for being a business owner a lot of us really only got attention um, after the lynching of George Floyd and, 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 you know, in the Black Lives Matter movement to really support black and brown owned businesses around this country. Right. Everybody's been doing this for a couple of years, yeah. right? But maybe he's just starting to, you know, get the recognition he deserves because, you know, he's coming from an underrepresented, uh, underrepresented, you know, category in this world, right? Yeah. So, but yeah, yeah, offline, if you can connect us, that'd be great. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to make that connection, and I definitely will. Um, and I love that. Thanks for sharing that story. I mean, there's something about the participatory nature of mm. of what you just described in any kind of learning where the, you know you end up more likely to apply those learnings over time. So I'd like to think that yeah. those kids kind of grew into into you know having a, a deeper appreciation for foods but then also like in relaying that back to their communities um and kind of like segueing off of that and like relaying back to the communities that shaped us um yeah. you you and i have a have a have a bit of a common connection down in new haven that's where my mom and her her family are from um okay. so you were you were raised in new haven but you moved to vermont when you were 13 like i'm just you know how would you i'm just curious and i, I think it's it's always interesting to me and I, I think for for um for listeners too like what what was your childhood like like what was your relationship with your with your parents and and um and you mentioned in the pre-podcast q a like the first career you remember wanting to pursue was literally hospitality. So I'm just sort of curious, like, could you paint the picture of like 
you know, a young TJ Douglas growing up in New Haven <laughs> and sort of the transitions you went through in life that kind of, you know, led to you um, being on the track you are now. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I grew up in New Haven. My, I'm, I'm mixed race as well. Uh, my mom's white, my dad's black. My dad was kind of out of the picture after I was like, I don't know, like five years old or so. And, um, and so my mom raised me, but you know, when we, when we lived in the projects in New Haven, it was, you know, she was the white person in the entire complex. Actually, I think there was one, one white family there, but you know, so, you know, identifying as mixed race or as black there, like I was the, I was, you know, with the exception of the kids that were Puerto Rican and I don't speak Spanish, like with the exception of those kids, like I was the lightest one there. Right. And so I was kind of in my own little world down there. Um, I worked, I cleaned the guy's truck, moving truck. And I always had this kind of like entrepreneurial mindset and I always wanted to make money. Um, and kind of like your, um, your, uh, your, your mother-in-law with, uh, with going to school at a later age, my mom went to Southern Connecticut, um, state, state U and it was probably, gosh, I think she was probably like 27 or 28 when she went there. And, uh, so I think I was already like five or six years old, maybe seven years old. And she worked for a, um, uh, I, um, like a potato chip company and she used to pick me up at an elementary school and, uh, you know, in, in the Tom's box truck and, uh, and then, you know, go there, um, go back to the warehouse, drop the truck off, grab her car. And then we go to like evening classes and I would go to like the arcade or sit in some classes or bring my skateboard and, and hang out while she was in school. Fast forward, um, she ended up getting a job at a grocery store so that she can get a discount on, uh, on a lot of the no frills food because it was just the two of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're on welfare. And I remember that, um, that she, uh, we got a, our welfare check of $450 a month. Somehow she made rent and food on that. Um, wow. And uh, while she's working uh, at Pathmark, I don't know if Pathmark's still around, but it's like a stop and shop, right? Mm-hmm. While she was doing that, um, she, uh, she would go to night classes, um, at Fordham University in New York. So she would drive from New Haven to New York, um, with our old Chevy, um, Chevette with a hole in the, in the, in the floor. I called it my Flintstone car because you could see the, you know, the floor. And, you know, and I was a latchkey kid, you know, and once she ended up getting her MSW and, um, had an opportunity to get a job at a, uh, at a hospital in central Vermont. And, um, why we chose Vermont is, uh, my aunt, uh, or her best friend, uh, worked for a company that relocated there from Waterbury. And, um, so we moved there, they lived in an inn. So we lived in an inn, uh, we had our own room and everything like that. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I'd be like watching TV or doing homework and guests would come in and I'd take their bags up and, you know, they'd tip me a buck and I'd stack wood for another buck and do all this other stuff. But, you know, moving to Vermont when I was 13, you know, this, you know, this, this, this short black kid with a, with a, with a, as everyone called it back then, a kid in play, but it was just my, it was just my high top. Um, you know, like the, it, was, it was hard. It was, it was a culture shock. You know, I mean, New Haven, I mean, you know, New Haven in the eighties, man. Um, you know, like gunshots every single day where I mm. moved to Vermont and dudes are walking down the street with rifles on their shoulder because it's hunting season. Right. It's like mm. such a, such a culture shock. But yeah. I moved to a town where I was the only person of color in my town. Um, really? and yeah. And so, you know, there are a lot of, you know, stereotypes and stereotypes are never good. Um, I'm going to move there and I just had to really create my own, my own safe space. And that safe space was, was, you know, just being me and, 
you know, trying to be friends with everyone and being very vocal and trying to play sports and you know, doing this. And I always worked. And uh, I worked my first um, kind of like real taxpaying job uh, was when I was 14. And I worked for this restaurant. And I was a dishwasher. And that was really my, my kickoff, Zach, to, to understanding or learning about hospitality is that when I was dishwasher, I was going out and clearing plates and stuff like that. I'd walk out, you know, past the swinging door from the kitchen into the dining room. And it was like this well-lit, like nice music playing and people sitting like at candlelit tables, you know, eating and smiling and laughing and telling stories. And it's like, and, and I, and I never had that experience. And granted, like the trouble that we had growing up, like I always had food at my table, right? Like, so there, we were so much luckier than some of the other kids, even in our own apartment complex. Um, but seeing this, like I never experienced that. And that was really the, the kickoff to me of that for two reasons. One, I, I wanted to be that person at that table experiencing that. But two, I also wanted to be the person in control of that diner's experience. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I worked there. I did a couple years at McDonald's. And, you know, I really loved like supersizing and having like just given like I, I, I crushed, crushed drive through. Right. Like people were like, you're so nice. Right. Because I got to talk to people. Right. And I got to get them what they wanted. Right. And it was always like, you know, super size number seven and a small Diet Coke. Right. Like it, just, <laughs> it didn't make sense. But, but I did that. And then I kind of worked my out out of that, went to a restaurant, became a busboy and a bar back uh, and then a server and kind of worked my way up to, to a bartender. And then I ended up moving to Boston when I was 21 uh, after school. And that really opened up my eyes to the beverage world. But it also um, opened my eyes up even more that nobody, like it was understandable that in Vermont, New Hampshire, that nobody looked like me. But when I'm moving to Boston, you know, um, like nobody looked like me in my industry that was in the front of the house. Everyone, like everyone else, brown and black, were barbacks and dishwashers and busboys, but no one was the bartender. No one was the head server. No one was the server. And so I ended up getting a job, even though I applied for a serving position with about eight years of experience now. Uh, I applied for a serving position, but because I'm like 6'3", and at the time I was like probably like 220, like I got hired as the bouncer, right? And I said, you know, work, work, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't get hired for the job that I was capable of. I got hired because I was black and big, right? Yeah. And uh, I, only, I only really recognized that uh, preparing for uh, a panel discussion uh, for a company that hired me to, to talk uh, during their, uh, their Black Awareness uh, Month and Black History Month. Uh, so only a couple of weeks ago, I realized this and I'm like, Oh my God, like I applied for what I was capable of doing and what my experience was, but they hired, hired me because I was black and because I was six, three, right. And not for the position. So I literally got my like fine dining, um, like position for a waiter when someone didn't show up and I'm like, I'll do it. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I am, I am and equipped to do this. Yeah. And I'm equipped to do it. You know, go find my resume from last year, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I, I did a great job and I ended up becoming the, the, the server trainer for other people. And, um, you know, I, after that, I worked for Todd English, uh, as a bar opening bar manager. And, uh, you know, still there was no one that was black or brown, um, that was really there to guide me through what was now becoming a really fun passion for me, which was learning and selling wine. And so uh, I had to really do more of kind of like an old school, you know, kind of street smart education on wine. I had to buy samples or buy, you know, buy wines and read myself because, you know, I couldn't really afford going through a small A class. I didn't have anyone to kind of guide me through that. And, um, you know, fast forward to after, uh, 
you know, running, uh, running a restaurant on Newberry Street for a few years, running a wine program and being on the distribution side for a few years, selling wines to stores and retail. It's really what wanted me to, or guided me to open up the Urban Grape is that I wanted to bring hospitality into retail, but I also wanted to show the world that, you know, you can think about wine in a different way, uh, i.e. the progressive scale and, and be successful without taking the traditional um, path of what people think it needs to be. And, um, you know, 10 years later, we were able to, which I hope we can touch on if we have time, uh, our partnership with Boston University and, um, and uh, a restaurant group and a wholesale uh, group uh, to create the uh, Urban Grape Wine Studies Award for students of color. And this is to <clears throat> meet uh, brown and black people where they are and say, hey, you know, there's this great industry called the wine industry and hospitality industry that you might not know that that is a great career because it hasn't, you know, you haven't been sitting at that table before. But here's what we'll do. If you're interested and you, have, you, know, you, you write a great essay for us and you show some passion and, 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 and wanting to grow in this industry, <clears throat> you know, with our endowment at, at Boston University, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll pay for your one-year, four-level, you know, $8,000 course. Um, but we'll also uh, you know, give you a year of uh, uh, split up by, by three, uh, three different paid internships uh, in retail at the Urban Grape, Wholesale, at MS Walker. And then in the restaurant side, front of house at Tiffany Faison's Big Heart, Big Heart Hospitality uh, Restaurant Group. And then on, on top of that, we'll give you, uh, you know, C-level and executive level ongoing mentorship so that when you come out of this industry or this education uh, in a year plus, you're not going to be pigeonholed into one part of this industry. But kind of like with that salsa, you, you, you learn how to grow something, you learn about wine, you figure out what to do with it, and then you can implement it the way that you want to do it. And we've actually done so well since we, this was implemented in June that we're, uh, we're a couple thousand dollars shy of our $200,000 endowment. But once we hit that, um, it's going to put two students through this program in perpetuity. Um, and, it's, and it's just really awesome because it uh, immediately will start changing the visual landscape uh, the industry that I love, which is the wine, wine and hospitality industry here in Boston. And once, uh, once we figure that out here and have the proof of concept here in Boston, um, we're working with some people to turn this into a true, uh, foundation of 501c3 and take it on a national level and do this with other retailers and wholesalers and restaurants and universities around the country and hopefully some HBCUs as well in the future. So That's... it's kind of, you know, I kind of sped through that, but my background brought me to this, uh, brought me to this moment, um, which is really important. And now people in these communities can see that this industry is for them because if they walk past my store and they see people that look like them, it's automatically going to be more welcoming to them. Uh, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And honestly, you, you just rolled right into the, the next topic I, I want to talk about. And I actually have a, have a couple like thoughts and questions I want to ask about the Urban sure. Great Wine Studies Award um, for students of color. Um, but I'd be remiss not to point out that it seems to me your your first foray in the hospitality wasn't dishwashing. It was living in an inn in Vermont at 13 and uh, helping yeah. people get their bags in their rooms. And like you were in this really interesting, like what a, what a fascinating living situation you were thrusted into in, in Vermont. Um, like that, like it's just, it's was that an official role or were you just like informally like, Oh cool. I'm going to say hello to guests and like help them with their bags. And you just like randomly pick up a buck here or there. 
know, you know, before you're recording this, you said you just want to have a conversation, and I think we're having a great conversation. Um, it's interesting. Like, it's it's actually never come to mind that I lived in an inn. I mean, I do a lot of these, a lot of a lot of talks, and I tell my story often, uh, most recently or as of recent, and um, and that's actually never popped up until just now. So I've actually never given no. It wasn't any thought. It's just like, hey, these people are coming in. We live in this place. I want to make them feel welcome, right? And when yeah. I go up to the, you were so hospitable. Stand and check in with the innkeeper, Lyle. You know, like, hey, if I'm sitting there, I see a win-win for everyone. They can get greeted with a smile. They don't have to carry their bags, and maybe I can get a buck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you I mean, know, and everyone has a great experience. You know. It, it, yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, I mean, well, it's just, it, sometimes it helps to have just like an, it's, it's someone observing a third party, just of like, oh, wow, like what your hospitality was ingrained in you were, you were, uh, you were unofficially like in a front of house, like ambassador to the inn that you lived in that, you know, maybe you quickly overlooked that because it was your home, but it was actually yeah. like, you know, it was, it was it, you were, you were, you were thrusted in, in the middle of, of sort of the hospitality industry, even at that point. Um, I mean, I've, I've always wanted to make people feel welcome yeah. right, and create a, a fun and hospitable place for them. But I, but I've also always wanted to impress people, right? And what's more impressive than a little kid watching TV come up and it's like, you know, good evening, sir. Good evening, ma'am. You know, I think you're staying in this room. Can I bring your bags up? You know, like, yeah, like that, you know, like that to me, I would be impressed. Like if, like if, if my 12 year old walked up and is like, good evening, sir, you know, and he'll probably do it like in a British accent or something because he's, he's great at accents. But, you know, like, <laughs> like to me, and that's, that's impressive. But like to create that, that welcoming environment, you know, like that's just, that's just awesome. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, th- thanks for letting me go back. I, I had to, I had to go back and double click on that. So, so back, <laughs> back up to the, back up to the present. Um, yeah. How many students, like, like how long ago did you start like the urban grape wine studies award for students of color? How many, how many, how many folks have gone through it? Like what I'm curious, like specifically, like what's your goal over the next one, two to five years? And I, and, and more in like a bit in terms of numbers. And I know like there's the 501c3 kind of aspirations and then also share with listeners, like how can folks, you know, participate, um, you know, donate to the endowment, et cetera. Like what are ways to sort of like kind of plug into it? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so we came up with the idea of, of having this education um, process back to, and I think I kind of cut myself off earlier in our conversation of, you know, being the only one in this industry. And I wanted to make my company more diverse, but there really wasn't anyone to hire, right? Because there weren't the brown and black people were applying for delivery positions and not for or management positions, right? Because they didn't have the access ahead of time. They didn't know that that was for them. And so in order for us to, in order for me at the Urban Grape as, as, the, as, as the manager there, to you know, hire some brown and black people. We had to get some brown and black people, you know, in, in, into the job pool, right? We had to, but I'm not going to hire anyone that isn't educated, right? Because we we have a high level of service. You need to know about wine, and so just like we're doing with our delivery system, we had to meet people where they were, and where that where that was is that we had to create opportunities. We had to create a place for people to get educated. 
um, have that access and the access could be financial, right? So to be able to create a place where they can come in and get free education. And, you know, so we started working with Boston University on that uh, early 2019, uh, maybe, and they loved the idea. But, you know, again, you know, as, as much as we've had a, a great year, a great couple of years, we're still a small business, right? It's just me and my wife. And, and it's uh, in, ter- in terms of, uh, of ownership. And, you know, to start a program like this and to go the endowment route, um, it takes, it takes cash to do that, you know? Right. And, you know, and cash is king, especially when you're a small business. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to have, you know, eight, $10,000 extra just kicking around, right? Because if you're going to have $10,000, you're going to reinvest it in your business always, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so to have that, we really wanted to, um, have um, a donor um, start this um, there. And so Boston University for about a year was looking for a donor to, to start this uh, program, which would only, which would only cost about seven, 7,000 bucks or 6,500 bucks to start this. And then our goal was to raise over about five years, a hundred thousand dollars and then have it be endowed at a hundred thousand dollars, you know, five years down the road. And, um, you know, no takers on the donor, no takers on the donor. And Boston University was working, working really hard for doing, for doing this. Um, and then after June 1st, um, where people had kind of like a, a reckoning with, you know, equality here in Boston and, and around the world, a uh, donor came out of the woodwork um, and said that, uh, you know, hey, you know, I, I'm going to donate money to this and we'll start it. But, and I don't think you know this, yet, I don't think I did this on the SVB event. But the donor said, "Yeah, I'll donate the you know sixty five hundred dollars, start this endowment. But TJ's name can't be attached to it. The Urban Grapes name can't be attached to it, and it can't be anything like students of color attached to it." And I said, "Wait, what?" <laughs> what <laughs> right? the fuck? So Sorry, that that, that, that warrants swe- that warrants the first swear of the podcast. What the fuck? What happened oh, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and this is coming off our, our, our best couple of weeks as a company because of all the community support that we had for, for supporting a, a minority owned business after the wake of, uh, of George Floyd and the BLM protests here in Boston. And, um, and so my wife, you know, I, I got home. She's like, Hey, I have great news and I have bad news. The great news is that we found a donor, right? And I'm like, uh, this is amazing. Uh, and I said, well, what's the bad news? She goes, and then she goes through what I just told you. So I open up my, my, my bank app on my phone. And I said, how much is it? She's like, it's $6,500 to start, to, to start the process, but it's 10000 to actually start the movement of, uh, of the endowment uh, now. And I looked at what we had in our bank from our great month, and I said, you know what? what we're doing this. Forget that, dude. Yeah. Um, and so we, we did it. And I am so proud to say that Boston University... In the history of the institution, Zach, has never created an endowment so quickly. Uh, the Board of Trustees has never approved uh, a, a name of an endowment so quickly. Uh, and they've also never created like the link on the computer to donate so quickly. Um, and when we are or about a month in, this started actually on like June 22nd, which is our 10-year anniversary uh, as a company. Uh, on June 22nd, they started it. Uh, we raised so much money so quickly that BU said, hey, you guys are crushing this. And, uh, and I think it might have even been the dean of the Met College said, you guys are <clears throat> uh, doing the, such an amazing job. 
<coughs> pardon me, how do you feel about putting two students through this program? And so two students would be nice. $200,000. <laughs> and we said, we would love to do this, but we need to go back with to the other uh, people on the internship side and make sure that they want to make the commitment because I need yeah. to put them on payroll for three or four months. And they both said, yes, absolutely. So in September, uh, I'm sorry, in October, uh, we put some applications out and in September they closed. And in October, we had our first student start uh, level one at BU and uh, also start um, their first internship at Urban Grape. Um, and in January, our second student started the level one and our internship at Urban Grape while the first student is now in level two and on her second internship at MS Walker. And so right now it's, it's, it's putting two students through this program every single year. Oh, yeah. And uh, April, April 15th, we put out um, the applications open up again and they can go right to Boston University's website and uh, search uh, Urban Grape or they can go right to the urbangrape.com and, um, and go to um, giving uh, and, uh, and giving, oh, I'm sorry, not giving, uh, go to change on the Urban Grape and it brings up uh, all of the information on how to donate, but also how to apply. Um, and so it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I think we're like, I literally think we're like $2,000 away from 200. Um, and we really want to have, you know, proof of concept that this works. And then what we want to do, Zach, is just cookie cut this around the country and, you know, go to other, you know, independently owned, preferably uh, minority owned or LGBTQ owned, uh, you know, businesses, uh, small businesses uh, around the country and focus on more students of color um, getting into the wine game and in the hospitality. Because when, you know, Suhail uh, Ramirez comes out of this program, uh, you know, sh she's going to have the, not only the choice, but she's going to be super attractive to the industry because now she has uh, experience in the front of the house in a, in a restaurant, uh, front of the house in the distributor, uh, front of the house in a retail, and then ongoing mentorship and free education taught by Masters of Wine. Oh, like, yeah. I would hire her in a minute, Fuck but yeah. she doesn't have to just work retail. She can do whatever she wants. And the yeah. cool thing is, just like I've created my own path in terms of the progressive scale, just think about what she's going to be able to do because she came to wine in a non, a very non-traditional way, but now she has all of these, you know, uh, uh, all of these experiences and all of this education that's going to let her create. And that's, what's going to change the wine world. And that's going to be the legacy of the urban grape right there, that it's not about us. It's about them. And it's about this program and it's about change. And, you know, in three years, there's going to be 15 new, 16 new people that are going to be working in wine shops, owning their own distributorships, working in restaurants, or maybe doing something that's never been done before in wine. You know, and so that gets me excited. Dude, that gets me excited too. And actually, that riff you just went on might be the that might that was so that was such fire. Like I might have that kind of cut up as the as the intro, you know, yeah. teaser to this podcast. That was that was amazing. Um, I, I appreciate that. And shout out to Boston university. I'm a terrier. I'm yeah. a BU, I'm a BU alum. And I, and I, I oh, I'm, right familiar on. With, I'm familiar with how slow the school can move. So it is tremendous and commendable at how quickly they moved in that situation. And dude, can, you know, shout out to you and, and, and your wife Hadley for, you know, just putting up the money and, and just like 
you know, being true to yourselves, um, in that, in that moment that you were in, I think that kind of speaks to the last question I wanted to ask you before we parted ways today. And I am thoroughly enjoying this. I can't wait to come visit you at the (laughs) store and, uh, and, and, you know, introduce you, you know, you and Josh to each other and just, just be, you know, connected and friends for life. And I really, I mean that from the heart. Um, but, but talk to me, you know, and talk to listeners, like, just before we before we go here, like talk about the legacy that you're building and the legacy that you want to ultimately leave to your to your two boys. Yeah, you know, so there's the you know kind of like the the the, the loose term of like legacy of like I'm taking over the family business, right? Like this 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 was this was my passion, right? Wine was my passion. Like I brought my wife into my world, mm-hmm. um, and I use you know we use her expertise. As, uh, as as someone coming from the marketing and philanthropic world um, to really build our company of, of 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 what it is today and what it's gonna what it's going to be in the future, and so you know there's there's that aspect of you know having like we're we're one of the most highly rated wine shops in the country, um, and we're also one of the only black owned wine shops in the country, and we're one of the top independently owned uh, you know bottle shops in the country too. So like that's a great legacy in terms of like we think of wine in a different way, and that and people definitely gravitate to that, and like that's one legacy. But the other legacy, which uh, which outweighs that one in my eyes, Zach, and in my heart, is the legacy of like, look, here's this little kid growing up on welfare in New Haven, you know, running home from the bus stop so he didn't get beat up by sixteen year olds. You know, um, because they were just angry and they didn't have access to anything. And so they used the power that they had to make themselves more powerful, right? From yeah. that kid and sitting in the back of a box truck and eating no frills discounted, you know, cereal that just came in a bag with a white label on it, you know, to being able to create opportunity for a community that will never die. Um, is absolutely huge. And to show them that like, yeah, like, you know, my, my kids have it extremely well. We work very, very hard for them. Um, we, we, we have had, you know, I feel some, some lucky breaks, some access that we've also helped create ourselves. And I want them to see that, that, you know, like we've had struggles. I mean, there was times that like when we, when we both left good jobs to start, you know, to follow my passion of wine and hospitality, like there were years that we didn't pay ourselves. Like we emptied out like 401ks and we emptied out savings account to really do this because we truly fully believed and not only the urban grape, but what the power of wine and hospitality and transparency uh, and using our platform could, could do to make change, right? And to make everything more accessible so that people like me and my kids are not the only ones in the room. For them to see that, and to take that, like that's their education right there. To see like how we've struggled, how we've come up on top, and how we've done some change for good that actually doesn't affect us directly. It's for others. For them to do that, for them to go out into this world with the hearts of really do more for yourself, you know, more, more do more for others than you do for yourself. Yeah. You know, we're not a religious family whatsoever, but that's like you know, kind of like pillars of a lot of religion, right? Like help others. And if we can do it and the way that we translate it right now, currently through wine, that's how we do it. So this is going to teach them that they can help 
make change for the world and make our world a better place, you know? And years ago, I used to say that, you know, wine brought people together and, you know, it was like a little like hallmarky, but who cares if it's hallmarky, man? Like if we have the opportunity to use our hearts and our brains and our platforms and our networks to make things better for others around us, both near and far, our world will be a better place because of it, you know? And so that's the legacy. I want the legacy to be their experience of watching of, of them growing up and seeing what we've been able to do for our community so that they can do even more for their communities in the future. That's beautiful. Just purposefully bringing people together in your community. Yep. Yeah. And, and doing it from a place of, of humility. That's yep. awesome. TJ. I, I couldn't thank you more for all this time. Um, th- thank Hadley and, the, and, and your sons too, for, for taking the, bit of the time away um, during this, this vacation week that you're on. I hope, I hope you you get to enjoy a, a good portion of it with them and don't and don't work so so hard. Um, but thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you for this and and um, and yeah, I'm really looking forward to sharing this with with the community and and, and connecting you with Josh and then on and soon enough, uh, finally, you know, getting a chance to meet uh, IRL as I'm sure your your sons might might refer to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, um, what um, where do where do you live? I live in Beverly. Okay. Cool. Yeah. 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 So, um, when, when, when we open up the store, um, you know, let's definitely, definitely, definitely connect. Um, I really, yeah. I really want to know you. So. Yeah. Likewise. Likewise. And I'm going to connect you with Josh after this and, um, and, and I'll definitely, I'll definitely be by the store and, you know, maybe we can get the families together. Like just, I mean, like, yeah, it's pre, you know, this is just the start, start to the friendship. So looking forward to, you know, what, what, what will come next. And it's nice that we got the light at the end of the tunnel on, on this pandemic so that we can actually get together in, in person soon. Absolutely. Man. Yeah. I appreciate right. you, uh, you listening to me and, uh, I look forward to this. Awesome. Thanks so much. Have T- a, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. TJ. Thank you, man. You, you take care. All right. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All right. Cheers. Cheers, Boston. <laughs>